And uh, the details for you are to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We'll start in chapter 1 this morning, verse 11. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you there in the rows, it will be page 972. And as our kids head back, it would be good for me just to uh, say a public thank you to all of our surf teams who have done an absolutely outstanding job uh, as we've transitioned to the club. So believe me, uh, our staff has made a lot of sacrifices, but many of you are also sacrificing a little extra sleep on Sunday morning to get here and get all of this set up uh, so we can worship God together in this place. So I want to publicly thank all of our surf teams for the great job they're doing each week. So Galatians 1, we're going to start in verse 11, and what we're going to encounter today is a story. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like most people really love a good story, whether that's written down in a book and communicated, or maybe in a movie or a play or some type of theater. We love a good story. And this is, this is the case in my house, particularly amongst our children. So Parker Four, going to be five in December. Kessa just turned two in May. They absolutely love to read books. And so one of our favorite times as parents is to sit down with our kids and have story time. Now, a couple of months ago, Kessid, our, our youngest, she came up with this new strategy before bedtime, okay? And it's, it's kind of cute, um, and it's kind of annoying, too, because if you learn anything about children, even at a young age, I'm talking before she even turned two, one-year-old she had already learned to, you know, work the system, basically. So she would go over to her bookshelf and say, gook, mommy, gook, daddy. Yes, I put a G on that. That's, what she, that's how she says it. So it's not books, it's gooks. And then when she could begin to put words together, it was more gooks, mommy, more gooks, daddy. And so this was, of course, part of her strategy to stay up as late as she could and enjoy our family time together. So here, here's a little evidence of her handiwork one night. I just couldn't take it. I had to take a picture of this. You can see Marsha there and there are probably, I tried to count last night, by the way, I think there are about 20 books stacked up that Kesset had just one after the other, after the other, after the other. She thought she was going to get to read them all, and there may have been a few tears after this moment because she didn't get to read them all. But, um, but we love story time at the Turley household, and I assume that many of you are like Kesset and Parker, you love a good story. Well, what we're going to see in Galatians 1 is a story. It's the story of the Apostle Paul. And I think what's captivating about stories and even captivating about the story of Paul is that we resonate with stories because our lives are really a story. From life's first cry, the opening chapters are beginning to be written to life's final breath. In the final chapters of life, our lives are like stories. And so here in Galatians 1, we have the story of the Apostle Paul, and Paul is going to share his story because Paul's aim really is not just to talk about himself and his own story, but his point in sharing his story is so that he can validate and point to God's greater story in the gospel. And so what I want us to see this morning, his primary argument is going to be this, the gospel belongs to God. And it is powerful to bring transformation. 
The gospel belongs to God and it is powerful to bring transformation. So this morning, I want us to consider the source and the power of the gospel and it is God's gospel. Let's look in chapter one, verse 11. Paul starts and he says this. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if you remember last week, we said that Paul is laying out the gospel in the early verses, and he is calling the Galatians to abandon any deviation from the gospel because he says, the moment that you begin to tweak or distort the gospel like these false teachers who had crept into the cities of Galatia were doing, he says, the moment you begin to tweak it, you've just lost the gospel. So Paul is writing these, this letter to these churches in the various cities of Galatia so that they can understand there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel, and it's the gospel that we stake our lives upon. The false teachers were known as Judaizers, okay? And they, were come, they came to be known as Judaizers because they were touting a message that said it's Jesus and his work plus keeping the Mosaic code, right? So, so in other words, you follow Jesus and you receive Jesus, but really to be accepted by God and more loved by God and pleasing to God, to really be saved, you need to not only embrace Jesus, but you need to keep all of these laws in the Old Testament that we find. And so Paul says, look, Jesus plus nothing is, is, is another gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a gospel that will not save. And so Paul comes with strong language in these opening verses, and we find his thesis statement for this, these verses that we're going to look at, 11 to 24, we find him in verse 11, where he simply says, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So what Paul is doing here, if you notice, every word in the Bible is important, okay? So he starts verse 11, he says, four. So he's building on what he just said in verse 10, where he says, for I am not trying to please man, nor am I seeking the approval of man. I'm a servant of Christ. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Jesus. And so building on that, he's saying, okay, um, just so you understand that that's true, you need to understand that this isn't about me. It's about God, and it's about his gospel. Now, how does he then build on his argument through these verses. Well, the first thing he's going to see uh, say is, is in verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so the Judaizers, the false teachers, they were saying, hey, Paul, you know, he's okay, but you know what? He just gets his message from other people, the apostles in Jerusalem. That's where he's gone to their little school, got the little lessons from them, and then he's going off and he's twisting it and, and, and distorting it and, and teaching it a gospel that you don't need to listen to. Let us bring in the real one. And so Paul is going to say, no, 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 no. I wasn't taught it from any man. I didn't receive it from any man. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. God revealed himself to Paul, and he gave the gospel to Paul directly. And we find this in the book of Acts chapter 9. So I want you to flip back, okay, back toward the beginning of the New Testament to the book of Acts chapter 9. If you're using the Bibles that we provide, it's 9.17, I believe. 
And in Acts chapter 9, it recounts the story of Paul when he was a persecutor of the church to when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and Christ turned his life upside down, converted him and commissioned him to be an apostle. So here we go, Acts chapter 9. It says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the way of Jesus, Christianity was known as the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here we have the story of the Apostle Paul. In verse 1, it says that he breathed out threats and murder against the disciples. The previous chapter told us that, that Stephen, one of the early leaders in the church, was martyred, and they laid the garments of Stephen at the feet of Paul as he gave approval to his death. Now these early verses have told us in chapter 9, hey, he's going to Damascus with papers from the, the, the religious leaders and the high priest saying, you can go and arrest anyone that you find who claims to be a Christian. So it doesn't get more extreme than Paul's commitment to take out the church in the early days after Christ's resurrection. But it says then, I believe in verse 4, that there was a great light that shone around Paul as he approached Damascus. In his testimony in chapter 26, it says that the light was brighter than the sun. And Jesus meets Paul on the road and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Did you catch that? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that there is an absolute union between Christ and his people. So, so because there is this complete identification and union between Christ and his people, Christ is in his people and his people are in Christ, because that is going on, if you mess with Christ's people, you've just messed with Jesus himself. So now we understand more of what's going on in the book of Galatians, right? I mean, if we don't understand union with Christ, we won't really understand the book of Galatians. And why is that, Tanner? Well, this is the reason why. It's because Paul is now not taking out the church and persecuting the church. Paul is now a Christian, and he has now been united with Christ. And so it works both ways. To mess with Christ is to mess with Paul, and to twist the gospel of Christ and distort that is to mess with the glory of Christ in the gospel as we looked at last week. So this is why it's so serious about making sure, calling people back to the true gospel, Jesus plus nothing, the work of Christ, his righteousness, not our own. 
And so Paul wants them to know this is no human invention. This is supernatural revelation. Jesus met me on the road to Damascus. He completely changed my life. He revealed himself to me. He revealed the gospel to me. And now my life has been changed by him. He was converted and commissioned as an apostle on that road to Damascus when he was going to imprison Christians. That's part of Paul's story. So we see here that The gospel must be revealed by God. Because it's God's gospel, God is the one who has to reveal it to us. You say, well, Tanner, you know, uh, when I came to Christ, God didn't shine a light on any road when I was traveling anywhere and gave me the gospel. How does this work? Well, I would contend that still the gospel must be revealed supernaturally. It's only that God uses instruments, people, not just preachers and pastors, by the way, but, but, but anyone who belongs to Christ has the message of Christ. He uses the instrument of our mouths to speak the words, and then the, the word is taken by the Spirit of God, as we see, as we read the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament, and the Spirit opens our eyes to see our need for Christ. He convicts us, as John 16 says, in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, so let me be very practical here this morning. I can say a lot of words. In fact, most Sundays I plan to say anywhere between 2,500 and 3,100 words, just if you were counting, all right? But I can say thousands of words this morning. And if the Spirit of God doesn't take it and make it effectual and powerful to you, if he doesn't open your heart to receive it, then these words will be empty. So this is why we need to come with humility, right? This is why we need to ask God to speak to us, to have a humble heart, to receive his word. God, show me yourself. Show me where I don't measure up. Show me how I can get my life back in line with your desire for me. So Paul takes this trip to Damascus. He sees the risen Christ in all of his glory. And we should not pass over that too quickly because without the resurrection, you don't have a gospel. Paul was commissioned to Speak of the risen Christ. And now it's our privilege to feed off the power of the resurrection daily and to witness, to testify to the fact that Jesus is alive. He is no dead savior, but he is alive and well. And he is to be worshiped because he has proven in his resurrection that he has victory over sin, Satan, and death. That's the kind of God I want to follow. Thank you very much. So, most scholars would even, and we sometimes bring this up around Easter time when we talk more about the resurrection, which we should probably talk about the resurrection every single Sunday, all right? But we we bring this up sometimes around Easter to say, if you want a, a point for the validity of the resurrection, just look at the Apostle Paul. Because no one in, in, in the early first century was, was looking at Paul and saying Paul wasn't absolutely committed to Judaism and absolutely committed to persecuting Christians. There's really no other explanation for the radical change in his life unless something like this, the risen Christ, meets him and changes him from the inside out. 
And so then this is where he goes in verses 13 to 24. So flip back to Galatians 1 and let's read uh, just verses 13 and 14 here. Uh, he, He continues on. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So so what we have here, again, is the beginning of Paul's story, okay? We could call it Paul's testimony. We talk about a testimony, we're saying, this is what has been true of my life, and we are telling others about what what, it, what has happened to us. So testimonies obviously go outside of the, the spiritual realm, right? We have testimonies in, 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 in the courtroom and testimonies elsewhere. But, but here you have Paul's spiritual testimony, his spiritual autobiography in a few short verses. And when, when we, we look at Galatians 1, we actually find a nice framework for us to consider how we can tell our own story, our own testimony. And it's really divided into three parts. What was life like before you met Jesus? What is, how did you come to know and believe in Jesus? And now how is your life different because of Jesus? Those are the three parts. And that's what Paul breaks down here in Galatians 1. So let's, let's think on Paul's life before he met Christ. Okay, he says, you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, don't rush over those words too quickly. Former life. What we find in Paul's testimony, and hopefully if you have received Christ, what you have also found to be true for yourself is that the power of the gospel has the power to turn a former life into a new life. Quite amazing and astounding. And so the the offer of the gospel is that whatever you bring to the table, all right, however messed up your life may be, however contrary you live to God's standards, no matter what plagues and riddles your life, when you bring that to Christ, Christ changes you and he gives you a, a power, equips you with resources to encounter anything in life in a wholly different way. So Paul here says, my life was totally different. It was a former life. And this is why he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. So so when he's traveling on the road to Damascus, just picture it's the old Paul. And then when Jesus shines his light on him and changes him, now he is new Paul living for God in a totally different way. I mean, if anyone could speak of a former life well, it was Paul. Because Paul, again, was radically against Christ and his followers. And so he describes it for us. He says that that his former life was marked by persecuting the church of God violently and trying to destroy it. This is how strong his animosity and his hatred toward Christ and Christians was. And then he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my people uh, my own age. 
And so what we have here is Paul was a rising star in Judaism, okay? He didn't pop into the synagogue a couple of times a year, get a little teaching, okay? He was trained, as Acts 5 tells us, by one of the greatest religious leaders among the Jews in the early uh, first century by a man named Gamaliel. So Paul had the best training he, he was so committed that he can honestly say, hey, I was, I was outpacing most everyone else that was being trained to be a Pharisee. And he describes it and he says, extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He belonged to the strictest party of the Jews known as the Pharisees. And Pharisees were, were so committed to knowing the, the, the law of Moses, knowing the, what we know as the Old Testament, and, 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 and what, what he says, though, is that it was the traditions of the fathers. So some of the things that they held to were right and true and good, and some of them were traditions that they had made up that were contrary to what the Word of God really said. And so in, in Philippians 3, I want to read verses 4 through 6 for us. We have Paul's ethnic, spiritual, and moral pedigree here. And this is what he says. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul says, look, if you want to see a religious guy that was really committed to the cause, you just needed to look at me. Most Pharisees, and I'm sure Paul, had the Pentateuch memorized. M- memorized. Okay, so I don't know if you like, read through the Bible, January 1, you start, and like, most of us are struggling just to get through you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuter. I mean, he had it memorized. And then, and then he says, when it came to keeping the law, he kept it so meticulously that he could say, I was blameless. I try to do everything down to the last detail. I try to do everything perfectly. But what we see from Paul is this, and we need to keep this in mind when we encounter people from other backgrounds and and religions is this. Someone can be extremely zealous. Someone can be extremely sincere. They can be one of the most religious people, devoted people that you have ever met, and that does not make them right. And that does not make them saved by God. So this was Paul. He was, as we will see, he was trusting in his own righteousness. He was trusting in what his hands could do to earn his way to God and be approved by God. And if that is you this morning, I want to plead with you to not trust in your own righteousness and in your own works, but to trust in Christ and receive his righteousness, his salvation. This is what happened for Paul. How did Paul come to know and believe in Christ? Well, verse 15, but, don't miss that word, but, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not merely consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So, Two of the greatest words we will ever find in Scripture are, but God. Ephesians 2, 4, but God. You were dead in your sins. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, but God. 
who is rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, not by your works. And so Paul starts verse 15, he says, but when he, but when God, and this is how it worked for Paul. This is how he was changed and converted. It says that he was, was set apart before he was born. So, so God's grace is so cosmic and comprehensive. God is so sovereign that before the day you were born, he set his loving eye on you. And he chose you to know him, to, that he would call you out of darkness and reveal his son to you all by his grace. So the point there, you want to like wrap your mind around that, which is basically impossible on this side of eternity, by the way. Uh, just, just know this. When you were not looking for God, God came looking for you. And that is good news. He set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace. This word calling is, is, is very important to understand. So you have the external call of the gospel that goes forth every time someone preaches the gospel or shares the gospel or tells the gospel to someone, okay? So, so there is this invitation. We saw this in the gospel of Luke when we plowed through it for 40 weeks, and we see it again and again in the Bible that the invitation, the external call of the gospel goes forth to all people. The gospel is for all people. It's for every nation under the sun. That's why we pray for the nations every single week at Redemption Hill. So the gospel goes to all people, but not all people believe in the gospel. So what God does is God sends his spirit to effectually call people to follow Christ. So you have the external call of the gospel that goes forth to all people. And then you have the internal work of the spirit by which he calls people to have their eyes opened, see Christ, the beauty of Christ, and respond to the gospel. So he sets us apart before we were born. He calls us by his grace. And what is grace but unmerited favor, right? So, so, so what do we contribute to our salvation? Absolutely nothing. Nada, zilch, zero. There's nothing that we can do to contribute anything to our salvation. It's all of grace. It's all the unmerited favor of God. And, and what does this do? Does this make us feel small? Does this make us feel less than? I hope not. What it should do is it should make us humble. It should make us grateful. And as the words of Romans 11 say, I think it's around verse 20, it says that the fact that God has called you, that he has grafted you into the true vine and made you his people, what it should do is not make you proud, but you should stand in awe. You should stand in awe that God would bring you the gospel, that God would show you his son and lead you to faith in Christ as a gift. So he called us by his grace, and he was pleased. It's wise. Whenever you see that word pleased or pleasure in reference to God, it would be good to underline that in your Bible. What, what brings pleasure to God? Revealing his son to people. So we talked about this in community group. I told Mike I wasn't going to give him credit for this, but I'm going to give my boy Mike, okay? He's in the Red Sox hat, okay, over here. Um, Mike, we were reflecting on how the gospel has the power to change us in community group this week. And so, you know, 
Mike says, you know what really gets me excited? And I was just hearing my sermon being written for me right there when, when Mike was speaking. And so he says, you know what, what really gets he- me excited is the fact that when one person comes to know Christ, heaven just erupts in joy. So that's what we see in the, the, the story of the prodigal son, right? When one sinner repents, all of the angels in heaven, they rejoice. There's a party. There's a celebration in heaven. But what my man Mike point out, and this is brilliant, by the way, is that why does heaven erupt? Why do the angels rejoice? Why is there such celebration in heaven when one person who did not believe in Christ turns and is changed by Christ and believes? It's because that thrills the heart of God. You see that? The angels are responding to God. God is pleased when people see the Son and embrace Him. So how do we receive salvation? Okay, so you may be here this morning and you may not have peace with God. You may not, when you, when you die one day and you stand before God, which we all will, you, you may not be confident that, that you would enter into his presence for all eternity. How can we receive salvation? Well, as God reveals his son to us and shows us our need for him, he shows us our sin, he shows us our idolatry, he shows us how we haven't lived for him or worshiped him. We need to see that, we need to admit that, that we have a barrier between us and God, that's our sin, and the wages of sin is death, it's eternal separation from God. But then not only do we need to admit our need for God, we need to believe in Christ and what he has done. Confess him as the Lord of our life and commit then to follow him for all of our days. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Admit, believe, confess, commit. That's it. Admit, believe, confess, commit. It's all of his grace. So if you need to admit your need for God, believe in Christ and what he did for you on the cross and his resurrection, then do it like right now. There's no reason to wait for such an amazing gift. So if you can't say, look, my former life, if you just have life and you've never been changed by grace, born again, a new creation, then do so today. And it's too good to pass up to tell you that, that if you meet someone, okay, be gracious, okay, we don't want to be theological, you know, uh, snobs and, and, and come across as, as, you know, know-it-alls or whatever. So you want to be gracious when you're talking theology with people, but you also don't want to let like false teaching slide, all right? So, so when someone says, you ask them, well, yeah, I've been to church and da-da-da. So when do you become a Christian? I've been a Christian my whole life. Anyone ever, anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever said that? Everyone ever thought that? Let me just set the record straight. That is a theological impossibility. No one is born a Christian. We are born sinners in need of God's grace. So this is how... Paul came to know and believe the gospel. Now, how did the gospel change Paul? Pick up in verse 18. It says, after three years, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But he saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith 
he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So here's the beautiful part. When the gospel comes into someone's life, it will necessarily change them and transform them. So we, are, we have been transformed by Christ as he's given us new life, and we are being transformed day by day by day. This is what we're about as a church. The mission of our church is to live out the mission of God as a community that is constantly being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how did the gospel transform Paul? Well, the persecutor now lives to preach Christ. He says that he revealed us his son to him in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul covers the timeline of his early days as a Christian. And again, he's doing all of this to show them that he didn't receive his gospel from any man, okay? He didn't get saved and then go back to Jerusalem so that he could check things out with Peter, James, and John and all the other apostles. But it says that he went away into Arabia, returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, it wasn't until three years that he goes to Jerusalem and he meets Peter, one apostle, and James, the Lord's brother, number two apostle, and he's only there for 15 days. So what Paul is doing is he's giving all of these details to validate that he didn't receive his gospel from any man. This is given by God. It's God's gospel, and this is the gospel that he's communicating. And I love how it says that even though he was unknown to the churches in Judea, that they were all hearing it said, he who used to persecute it is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So this is the power of the gospel at work in Paul. He once persecuted the church, now he's preaching Christ and the gospel that he once tried to destroy. Then number two, another change that God brought to Paul's life is that the people pleaser now lived to please God. So we saw in verse 10, he's saying, hey, I don't seek the approval of man. I'm not about seeking the pleasure of man. But before he came to Christ, he absolutely would have been seeking the approval of man and the pleasure of man. In fact, this is what the Pharisees were really good at. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that when they prayed, they would go on the street corner and, you know, so that everyone could see them praying. And then, and then after they got them praying, everyone could kind of pat them on the day. Oh, you're such a great prayer. You know, you're so holy. You're so religious. You're so devout. Look at how many times a day you pray. And then when they fasted, the Pharisees would, you know, put oil on their face. And they wanted everyone to know, hey, I'm fasting. Look at me. I'm so devoted to God. I'm so spiritual. And they were seeking the approval and pleasure of man. Jesus says, if you're seeking that in this life, you better enjoy it because that's all you're going to get. You're not going to receive the pleasure of God. And we all struggle with this, right? I mean, just, just look in the mirror of your life for just a moment. I mean, do you crave approval from others? Do you, do you want others to, to, to speak well of you and make much of you so that inside you can feel just a little bit better about yourself? I think we all struggle with this to some degree. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel frees us from pleasing people because God is so pleased with his son and what Jesus did for us. Now because Jesus is in us, we have all the pleasure we need because God is pleased with us. And because God is pleased with us, now we are free to live for his pleasure. It's amazing how that works. So the people pleaser now lives to please God. And finally, the, wall, the way that Paul calculated profit and loss 
also radically changed. Okay, so how does he continue his testimony in Philippians 3? In verse 7, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish. I count them trash in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own but that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul is saying here, look, I used to count all these things as gain. I, I used to, the, my religious duties and the approval of man and, and, and all of that, I used to chase after that and that's where I found life. That's where I actually found my salvation, all these functional saviors that we chase after. And now he says, because of what Christ has done, I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing him. So this is how the gospel changed Paul. And Paul's point in all of this is to say, look, if you want to know whether or not the gospel came from me or if it came from God, just look at my life and know that the only explanation for a persecutor of the faith being turned into someone who is proclaiming Christ is the fact that Jesus has changed my life in a very radical way. And so let me ask you this. Is there, is there anyone in your life that you believe is beyond the reach of God's grace? Is there someone in your life that you would say, you know what, they're so radically out there, away from Christianity and the Bible and Jesus, that I really, I mean, I know Theologically, God can save anybody, but practically, I really don't think that roommate, that family member, that friend, that coworker, that neighbor would ever really come to Christ. And so what happens when we do that is we fail to share the gospel because we don't think, in a practical sense, that God can really change them. But the Apostle Paul's life shows us that God can change anyone. And so then it is our privilege, just as Paul shared his testimony, to share our testimony with others that they might come to know the life that we have in Christ. And so Paul's story is laid out in Galatians 1, and Paul lived to tell this story. Acts 20, verse 24, he says, I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So what about, what about you? Do you have a testimony? Has Christ changed your life? If, if you don't have a testimony, you can, you can receive a testimony today by turning to faith in Christ. But if, but if you do have a testimony, well, let me just ask you, when is the last time you shared your story with someone else in hopes of sharing ultimately the story of Christ with them? When is the last time? I'm, I'm like really asking you, put a date on it, on the calendar. When is the last time? So this is a question we don't ask enough. 
I want to just set myself out there. I want anybody in this church at any point, whether it's by text, by Facebook, in person, on a Sunday, I want you to ask me, when is the last time you shared your story and the story of Christ? Because this is a privilege, but this is also a responsibility that we have to tell people about Jesus. So let me just share a few encouragements here as we want to share our story at Redemption Hill. Okay, number one, your story is unique. No one has your story. No one has your background, your journey, your, your, the details of your faith story. They're going to be unique in sharing it uh, to others. But then number two, your story will reach a unique audience. So you have friends. We talk about this all the time. You have friends that I don't. You work in places I don't. You frequent businesses that I don't, and your, your story has the impact, the power to reach different audiences. So let's recognize that and take advantage of the various spheres of influence in which God places us. But then number three, your story provides evidence of God's power. So as you share your story and you say, hey, I once was like this, and I used to think life was all about me, and I once was filled with pride and lust and selfishness and anger, but now God has changed me, and I have more humility and more patience and more grace and more self-control in life. Man, all of that is a testimony to God's power. And then finally, not only that, your story provides the opportunity to tell the story. Okay, so, so no one will be saved by me saying, hey, this is how Christ changed me. But in that is the story of the gospel. And as I share the story of the gospel, what Jesus has done, and I say, hey, this is how you can have that too and experience the same change as that we share our stories, then we can point people to the story of the gospel that has the power of salvation in it. So let's be about the, the, the task of sharing our story and sharing the story of the gospel. Let me close with this. The book of Revelation, it was written to a group of persecuted Christians. And the, the reason the book of Revelation was written primarily was to encourage these persecuted Christians to endure and to overcome because their final destination is so good. And that teaches us the same thing today. But in chapter 12, starting in verse 10, this is a picture of what will happen in the end as Satan is, is thrown down and overcome and we one day we'll stand before God as conquerors and overcomers. This is what Revelation 12 says. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So just picture this. One day we will all stand before God. 
And the question is going to be, how can any one of us enter into his presence as a conqueror, as one who has overcome? And by the way, Satan will be there. And he's going to be accusing you. Remember when you didn't live for God? Remember how you live contrary to his commands again and again and again and again and again and again? Hundreds and thousands of times you broke God's commands. What's going to happen in that moment? How will you stand? The only plea we have is that Christ died for us, that God set us apart before we were born, called us by his grace, revealed his son to us, and now we are saying, it's not my righteousness, but it's his. And when you say that, all of heaven will erupt in glory to God. Let's pray. Father, I'm really praying right now for someone who is not in, is not in with the family of God, has not turned their life over to you. And so God, if there is anyone who is trusting in their own morality, their own good works, their own attendance in church, their own Bible reading, their own prayer, Father, we pray that you would turn their former life into a new life in Christ. Father, we pray that, that we who have this new life in you would be quick to tell the story of how you have changed us and the story of the gospel that has the power to save anyone under the sun. God, make us a faithful church to you so that we can be a part of that one day. We stand before you and we give you praise and all of heaven just goes wild because of your grace to us and because of the glory that is in the gospel. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, for sending him to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sin. It's through him we pray. Amen.